Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, na'amaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem, amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, we seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing, what is Islam by Shahab Ahmad, we are on page 84 on the paragraph that begins, Persianate. Right, want to read? Sure. Can I just read one paragraph and then somebody else can read? Fine. Okay, thanks. Persianate thus runs too ready a risk of falling into service of the ever... Appeal of conceptualizing Islamic history in terms of Persian and Arab nationalist readings. Okay. So what we're talking about here is uh, that ongoing question of not so much how do we define what is Islam, but through what lens. And so so there's terms like Perso-Turkic and Persianate. So Persianate, in theory, would be referring to what? Persians. So yeah, the area of the world where Persian, Persia or uh, Persian or Farsi is is a dominant language or a foundational language, if there is such a thing, and so so it becomes basically reductionist. It's appealing to do that, right? But you're reducing people to one culture, and thus it's saying you know everything, right? This is the point we've been discussing. Like if you know the language of a people, the theory for many is that okay, now you know what you need to know. Okay, but and then you can just read all their books, but that's not going to tell you anything in terms of what's going on in their lives, right? It can give you a hint, but you're wasting a lot of time. It would be like if I wanted to know the people of the West, I'm going to learn English and read Shakespeare and and let's say read all the bestsellers, and thus now I know what's going on in the household of, of an American. Mm. That you probably know more than you would by reading a thousand year old books, you know, a set of thousand year old books um, in their particular language. So the concern is just that it ignores the present culture. It definitely, I mean, it definitely ignores the present culture, uh, if that's what you're seeking, but it minimizes culture to something, people's lives to something very, very, very simple, and it misses everything, right? So, so think about it like, you know, if I wanted to know Bridgeview, right, and, and, and so uh, I decided, well, they're Palestinians, so let me just study the history of Palestine. But not even that, let me study Palestinian dialect of Arabic. Mm. What has that told me about Bridgeview? It's literally told me nothing, right? Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Balkan Sabengal is not only a more neutral term, but is better expressive of the ethnic and linguistic diversity and cultural heritages of this complex of historical societies and discourses. So what's different between these two terms, Persianate and Balkans to Bengal? What are some differences? So one is language-based. Yeah, so one's language-based. It's geographic-based. The other one's location-based. Yeah, that's already one big one. What else? The other one is encompassing of like, uh, it's not it's not reductive. It's saying like, it, it gives you a range. Yeah, exactly. So it's basically, by calling it Balkans to Bengal, it's sort of speaking of the borders, the edges, mm. right? And so it's a little bit better. Yeah. All right, let's continue. So he's defending his own term. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, that has to be part of the, the, the process of such books. Yeah. It is of prime importance always to bear in mind that the Balkans to Bengal is a locally polyglot region, that is, with more than one language spoken in local settings, often by the same people, and that the producers of its high culture, in particular, were above all polyphone. Okay, that's a very important point. So imagine if I wanted to get to know India and I studied Hindi. Okay, 
Uh, there's, I don't know how many regions there are in India where they only speak Hindi, right? Uh, if I wanted to do language, I'd probably have to do Hindi, English, local language. But even that's not going to tell me much of anything. But this is another very, very important point that many, many places in the world, uh, perhaps most of the places in the world, people have multiple languages. As is nicely exemplified in the fact that the Ottoman class defined itself not at all by ethnicity, but rather by knowledge of the El Sine e Selese. Sure. I know. <laughs> the three like the one language I don't know yet. Yeah. The three languages of Arabic, Persian, and Ottoman, and their accompanying textual canons in Paedia. What do you think Paedia is? Encyclopaedia. So, oh. so essentially their world of knowledge. Cool. Yeah. Similarly, the 17th century Mughal Book of the Gentlemen. <laughs> That's a cool title. <laughs> That's a good, where can I get that book? Yeah. The Mirza Nama. Mirza Nama. <laughs> yeah. um, stipulated that a gentleman, Mirza, must have knowledge of all Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and Hindi, the language that would come to be known as Urdu. Okay. So... so yeah. Just question. So, yeah. because I know Urdu, yeah. does that make me a gentleman by default? That makes you a Mirza by default, according yes, to I'd this. I'd be a Mirza too. I know Arabic, Persian, and Hindi. Yeah, but you don't know Urdu. Ooh. Oh, man. Well, I know Urdu. It says <laughs> Hindi and Mirza. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so actually, technically, you're not, you're not a, a Mirza because. I'm the product of Mirza. Oh. But, I mean, to be Mirza, you have to be Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and Hindi. I'm sorry. I'm going to go with Allah knows best. <laughs> okay. But, okay, so let's reframe it. Uh, this is also, so he's focusing on language and how it plays out in, in people's worlds. So uh, in the Ottoman times, it's Persian, Arabic, and then Ottoman, Turkish. And then this other one is Arabic, Persian, Tur uh, Turkish, Hindi. Uh, what about today? If we look in the realm of language, um, in our society, you're considered sophisticated if you know what language. French. Yeah, it's French. Yeah, it's totally French. It has to be French. Yeah. And it's funny how much hatred there is for France uh, through many parts of, of America. Yeah. But still the notion is that, all right, if you know French, there's something sophisticated. You're smart. Yeah. You're like highbrow. Like... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then they don't like Spanish, and Spanish is the most used. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's continue. Above all, though, Persianate, Turco-Persian, and other such ethnic and linguistic identifications distract from the fundamental conceptual and analytical point towards which I am seeking to orient and habituate the reader. Namely, that what we find articulated in the Balkan Sabengal complex is a major historical paradigm that is most meaningfully conceptualized not not terms of the Persianate, Turkic, or Perso-Turkic, but of Islam. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. I heard right. you do that. <laughs> oh, you did? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I took my, I'm like, what's going on? Because like, I thought there was an alarm going off. He did a huge dun-dun-dun right then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's continue on to the next paragraph. Now it might be. How about one of you gentlemen's? One of you Mirza's? Mirza's. <laughs> oh, wow. Now it might be objected that the six examples that I have presented are representative of elite society and culture, and that the society of elites is necessarily unrepresentative of society at large in that it possesses isolated high culture, the beliefs and practices of which are more likely to deviate from the accepted norms of Islam at large. 
which we might be inclined to assume to be more legally determined or orthodox norms. To make this objection is to omit to take into account at least four important socio-historical facts. Okay, so uh, what, do you, what would you say are some differences between general American culture and American elite culture? What do you think? Very different. Like what, like describe? Uh, Socializing. Socializing. Like, like, I mean, don't give me the word, but like, I mean, give me the, the actual. I just think difference. like the places, like, okay, so like in Tennessee, for example, like okay. the, the places that might be considered fancy are totally different than a place in Chicago. Okay, so but like, so, how are they different? So yeah. like here, like going out to a super nice place might be going to like a three-star Michelin restaurant and going okay. to Alenia. Okay. But like in the area I go to school, like no one even knows what a Michelin star is, uh-huh. right? It's like, oh, I'm gonna go out tonight. Like, oh, where are you going? It's like, oh, we're gonna go to Olive Garden. Uh-huh. Not to say Olive Garden's a bad place uh-huh. or anything's wrong with that, but just the very conception of what is fancy, what's fancy, is totally different, uh-huh. right? Or like, I remember I was telling you earlier the conversation about football. Uh-huh. Here, it's seen as like, oh, I would never put my child in football. Here are uh-huh. all the risks, but but there, it's such a, uh, it's such a cultural value that Uh it's not even about the injury it's like no of course my child is going to play football right it's so ingrained into like Uh just the the value system Mm -hmm. it's the same in virginia like you have to be on the football team um when you are like the homecoming game like just all of that Mm -hmm. is part of um i would say that's more elite Mm -hmm. to be part of that i'm suggesting that what you guys are describing is middle class upper middle class i'm talking about the elite Oh, I mean, I wouldn't know. I'm not. <laughs> so, so. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm bougie, but I'm not that bougie. <laughs> like business class trips. Yeah, I'm saying going above that. Yacht. That's that's I no, no. I, so I think the elite here is it's like it's like uh, like elite here is also very tied with power, like yeah. the Pritzker family, right? Yeah, like exactly. so, elite in a, in Chicago, yeah. For, yeah. in Chicago, for example, elite would be like setting policy or saying uh-huh. yeah let's get amazon over here uh-huh. let's get when you're part of those conversations uh-huh. and those social events that's that's the elite that's uh-huh. a different world yeah like uh, uh, that's what we're talking about yeah. yeah and so like there's not even uh, to even be aware of that world uh-huh. is like i mean like to me those worlds are so centered in urban cities like uh-huh. it makes sense to me the disconnect between like rural america and like urban america because that's a different uh-huh. I mean, that's just a different way of thinking, mm-hmm. living, and, like, uh, it is, it's interesting to me, the alliances, like, the political alliances that are made, too, but. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, so there is uh, this this elite in, in American culture, <clears throat> and, yeah, that will, uh, they'll be having their very different social engagements, right, uh, kind of like the stuff that we'd see in movies and television and such, uh, expectations in terms of education, right, uh, that you're probably not just going to go to a private school, you're going to go to one of the very, very small, small private schools. So like the, like the super private schools in Chicago would be the lab school at U of C, Francis Parker, and Latin, uh, the Latin school. Uh, but then there's like North Shore Country Day School, which is, uh, um, you know, even smaller than all these other ones. Um, or it's assumed that you're going to go to one of the schools like Phillips Exeter, Right, Chilt Rosemary Hall, some of these these exclusive uh, private schools, and you're going to be a legacy, right? 
And also there's a different consciousness in terms of how the rules apply to you, right? That when you're lower on the food chain, you have more of a sense that the, the you know, you're bound by these rules because that's how people oh, are supposed to behave. That's why, that's the point you're in. Mm-hmm. Explain. <clears throat> like how, how they were saying, so like, because I think when this class first started, we kept imagining Islam mm-hmm. as, as like, how could you divorce Islam from the law? Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. But it's also like when you're in that social class, when you're just a regular person, uh-huh. it's not, you can't separate it from the law. But when you're part of the elite, you don't see the law as sort of constricting you in any way. Mm-hmm. And that explains like the logic of like a lot of this, yes. these behaviors. It's like, yeah. no, like the law is for the masses. Uh-huh. Like we don't have to worry about that yeah. here. And and part of that is when you're the elite, you uh, openly or or unconsciously regard yourself as being the civilized class, right? Yeah. That's why we don't need law, because we're already civilized. We've, we're already, we've achieved the goal of the law. Yeah. 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 So connecting that to, like, the philosophers back then in the first chapter that, um, that you know, made their argument that they didn't need the law because of, um, because they were, the law was for the masses, that mm-hmm. argument. Is that that's a different argument than this one, right? They're t- approaching it from a more, you know, logical way versus well, these I guys are doing it by just. Their <clears throat> I don't think they're. I don't think they're conscious of this. Mm-hmm. You mean the elite? The elite. I think mm-hmm. it's like our analysis of it. Like, yeah. and so like, I think like for example, they'll use what the philosopher said maybe, mm-hmm. but like looking at it, like this is the reality mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, like. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, you, you're saying they use the philosophers as like a rationalization. I don't. I don't know. No, I'm I, I made that up. Not necessarily. Like, yeah. so think of it this way: that if you were to imagine an education of someone from a middle class world, let's say a full time Islamic school, you know, in the southwest <laughs> suburbs, right? You're going to be taught law quite a bit, right? But if you're in an elite, the hypothetical elite Islamic school, you're going to be taught stuff like philosophy and art. Yeah. Right, because this is how this is what cultivates a person, right? Whereas in uh, the 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 middle class school, it'll be like this is what you need to be a good person, right? So it's almost like the sentiment is the same, but what you need to have that is very very different. So, so uh, then when you move into a lower class, you're going to see much much more of a focus, not even on law, but basically think of law as black and white, okay. Now, add that to, you know, the different Americas that we have, for example, in the last election, when people of rural America are looking at the white people of the cities, okay, that is how they're imagining the political right and the political left, right? That we're the regular people, okay, we're the real Americans, and then you have these elite liberals, right, who, who have no morality and don't care about anything, right? That's how the left is being depicted in a place like Tennessee, right? Where we, the people of Tennessee, see ourselves as we're the real Americans, we're the, one who, we're the ones who work, we're the ones who actually sweat, and those people are into their frou-frou, whatever. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue. <clears throat> the first is that the norms of this Balkans or Bengal elite were not hermetically isolated in high society, but rather were part of an active economy of circulate of circulation of norms that move through society at large by way of active projects of circulation, such as the epitomizing of fundamental Sufi philosophical ideas in vernacular primers. 
<laughs> as well as, as and more impo most importantly, the translation, configuration, and dramatization of these ideas into poetical and narrative fiction, which served as the primary medium for their oral circulation. Okay, you want to try to translate that 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 fifteen line sentence into? I laughed in the middle because I was yeah. like, I don't even know what I'm reading. Anymore. Okay, so what we're talking about right now, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that uh, the first thing is that okay, the elite were not living, you know, completely separate from the rest of society, right? Uh, but how did the elite, you know, how, what is the real connection society? They're the ones who are the patrons for things that everyone else feeds upon. So like when you go to the Art Institute, yeah. the elite are the ones that are sponsoring the paintings, that are sponsoring the rooms, the studios, and everything. Or like the Chicago Cultural Center. Chicago Cultural Center, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so you see the name of such and such person. Yeah. And so part of their joy and part of their esteem is this is what I'm providing for the rest of society. And then we, as the consumers uh, uh, in society, are then benefiting from that. So it's it, they're providing all these other things. Yeah. Okay. Continue. An excellent case study. An excellent case study of the circulation of norms through society is provided by Nazif Sharani, okay. who asked the question: How is the Islamic vision of the world socially produced, reproduced, communicated, and sustained among the peoples of Afghanistan? both literate mm -hmm. and urban, as well as illiterate and rural. Mm -hmm. That is, how is the received Islamic knowledge contained in the great literate tradition of the madrasa and ulema mediated, appropriated, and transformed into popular sources of knowledge easily accessible to the majority of illiterate Afghans, and for that matter, Turkmenistan's and other Muslims. Turkestanis. and other Muslims. Okay. So, so Afghan, what do you think about uh, the question itself? I don't know. I feel like my honors are sick. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, so the Choose question... Your words the, so, uh, I'm not familiar with this person, but what I'm suspecting he's basically saying is that, all right, in a place like Afghanistan, I mean, and he's just picking Afghanistan as this place that has has an urban society, a literate, for lack of a better term, cultured urban society, and that it also has... Uh, illiterate rural population, how does Islam get preserved for everyone, right? And then transmitted to the next generations or transmitted across social classes. Which... Do you think some of it is like mythology? Well, let's see what he says. Yeah. I'm scared. <laughs> the answer. A substantial part of the corpus of high tradition of Islamic knowledge has been mediated by the social production and reproduction of vernacular popular Islamic texts, and thereby made available to the masses of non-illiterate Muslims. Non-illiterate. Oh, non-literate Muslims. When this body of local Islamic knowledge and understanding is acquired and sustained through lifelong exposure to the elements of textual materials and the day-to-day -day interactions of the members of a community, it becomes a part of the individual Muslim practitioner. Okay, so how does it, how does it happen then? What's his answer? Basically, what we just talked about in the previous section, okay. or the previous paragraph, that basically you have the production of these stories, right, these books, and who's, who's sponsoring them? The elite, right? And then that then becomes circulated through, through the, the masses, and just, you know, the repetition of these stories, these ideas, becomes essentially their Islam. Yeah. Think about like even like the stuff that gets reproduced and we don't realize it or replayed over and over again and we don't realize it just about being in American life. 
Part of it is just a calendar. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Okay, so I'm saying that, you know, 4th of July, it's almost like a refresher in terms of patriotism, nationalism, right? Labor Day, even though most people won't remember Labor Day, but just the name that it's Labor Day, right? Veterans Day, Thanksgiving, so forth and so on. So one is just by way of the calendar of the holidays, there's that reputation. But you'll find these things like, you know, and just what the stories are that, that, that we are taught, right? Or how we're taught these stories. You know, like uh, American fiction has so much focus on the underdog. But, yeah. Uh, do you think also, like, maybe the, would the mainstream, would the media be an example of that? Absolutely. Like, they, they set the national discourse, they yeah. set, like, what is just on people's minds and yeah. like, what they talk about. Yeah, and I, and I would suggest that that has increased with each decade, uh, at least for, like, the last 50 years, mm-hmm. right? You know, now we're at the level of social media, and I can't imagine, you know, what the next level would be. Right. But um, but uh, that's a big part of it. And then it's also the crossover between that and sports. Right. And what is one of the big themes in sports? It's this this clash, you know, between two sides. And again, off, uh, it's a celebration of the underdog. And it's also a celebration of the champion. But especially when the underdog is a champion, then you know, like when the Cubs last year, then, every, then people get really, really excited. And so who's who who runs these? You know, sports teams. Who owns them? These are the elite. The billionaires. Yeah. But how does it, um, I'm kind of confused about how does it get to the illiterate of the rural? Like, what comes to my mind? I mean, I guess now with TV, um, social media, all that, it does somewhat get around. But mm-hmm. still, like, if there's, like, writings and stuff going around and they can't read it, mm-hmm. um, it's not really going to make sense to them. I know that in the past, like, my... I mean, my parents come from educated families, but um, even, like, some relatives and stuff that we have, they will tell stories that they've heard. Mm-hmm. Stories of stories of stories of, like, mm-hmm. the prophet. So at some point, somebody had to write those. Okay. Or, I mean, it yeah. propagates through society. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a starting point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like the literature and stuff? Yeah, yeah so oh, the okay. elite are the starting point. So mm-hmm. whatever they choose to write about, whatever they choose to, like, yeah. sort of or put out there. whatever they choose to sponsor someone writing about. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and then, like, yeah. so they, that's yeah. the stuff that propagates through. Okay. Them. Right? So, like... Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, let's stop right here. So what sentence was that that we ended? Muslim practitioner? Yeah. By so footnote 210? Yeah. Yes. All right. In what page is that? 86? Yes. All right. We'll stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirka wa natubu ilayku akhirat a'wana an alhamdulillah. Rabbil alameen. Sure. Never spoke